0: Hello, this is Anthony Day and welcome to this last edition in May of the Sustainable Futures Show. This week was the week of the Queen's Speech, when the new government laid out its programme of legislation for the new Parliament. Not much in it about sustainability or the low-carbon economy. We'll talk about that later. First, low-carbon aviation, low-carbon in the Middle East, more about decarbonisation of investments, and the $5 trillion hidden subsidies to fossil fuel industries. I've often wondered how aviation will work in a low-carbon economy. There's little alternative to aviation spirit of fossil fuel. What will happen when it gets more expensive, as oil becomes scarce? and carbon emissions are taxed. Solar Impulse, a totally solar-powered aircraft, is currently on a trip around the world. It will be an amazing achievement, but an aircraft that carries only the pilot and takes five days to cross the Pacific is no solution to the high-carbon air travel problem. This week, Boeing will showcase its global efforts to develop sustainable aviation biofuel at Expo Milano 2015. Richard Branson has already flown a test flight with one of the engines on one of his aircraft using biofuel. Maybe that's the future. But there will always be the debate between growing crops for biofuel and growing crops for food. My prediction is that we could well go back to where we were 40 years ago, with no budget airlines, no easyJet, no Ryanair, and air travel only for the very rich. Fewer, but far more comfortable and far more expensive planes. If I'm right, then investors will never get their money back on a new runway at Heathrow or Gatwick. This week, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, announced a wide range of initiatives to accelerate deployment of clean energy at the UN Sustainable Energy for All, SE4A, forum in New York, notably in support of the UN's goal to double the global share of renewables by 2030. The country's actions included the tripling of renewable energy targets in Dubai and expansion of the pioneering Renewable Energy Aid Programme, which has allocated over $750 million for fellow developing countries since 2013. Sustainable energy is a cornerstone of our economic development goals and our foreign policy, said Dr Sultan Al Jaber, UAE. Minister of State, Chairman of Mazda, a clean energy company, and member of the SE4A Advisory Board. The UAE is committed to to developing and deploying renewable energy, both domestically and internationally, to enhance energy security, ensure sustainable economic development, and mitigate climate change. As an economy blessed with rich hydrocarbon resources, We have a responsibility to extend our energy leadership beyond hydrocarbons and to ensure the continued supply of energy to global markets, he said. It's interesting that an oil state is developing renewable energy. The UAE has some 6% of the world's oil reserves, which would last over 70 years at current rates of production. Maybe they are concerned that global actions will prevent them from exploiting these reserves. As we've seen, there is growing concern that if we extract and burn all the fossil fuels available to us, we will poison the planet and cause catastrophic climate change. This concern is becoming increasingly mainstream, expressed by bodies such as the Portfolio Decarbonisation Coalition, the PDC. Co-founded by the United Nations Environment Finance Initiative, the fourth National Pension Fund of Sweden... Europe's largest asset manager, Amundi, and CDP, the international not-for-profit organisation holding the largest global collection of corporate environmental data, the PDC was launched at the UN Climate Summit in September 2014. It aims to drive down greenhouse gas emissions by mobilising a critical mass of institutional investors committed to decarbonising their portfolios. In other words, selling off any investments in oil, gas or coal. This week, PDC announced that it had been joined by the UK's Environment Agency Pension Fund, Local Government Super, an Australian pension fund, and the French Pension Fund for Civil Servants. This brings the total number of PDC members to 12, and means that it is now overseeing the decarbonisation of $45 billion of assets under management. The PDC is therefore better positioned to achieve its decarbonisation target of $100 billion across all asset classes in time for COP21, the Paris Climate Conference, at the end of 2015. Dawn Turner at the Environment Agency Pension Fund said... Reducing climate risk is the number one responsible investment priority for the Environment Agency Pension Fund. Our desire to move to a low-carbon world can only be achieved by working with others. Joining the PDC gives us the great opportunity to develop and share practical solutions for all investors to reduce the climate risk within their portfolios. The progress of the PDC to date is a clear signal that a growing number of leading investors are committed to reducing the carbon risks and impacts of their portfolios as investors are not compensated for this risk. Governments are also urging commitment, with President Hollande opening the Business and Climate Summit last week with a reference to PDC and a call on the finance sector to decarbonise. Where is your pension fund invested? Do you know? Although the new British government is likely to continue to subsidise solar panels and offshore wind, it is committed to ending subsidies for wind farms on land. But did you know that globally, governments subsidise fossil fuel industries to the extent of some $5.3 trillion? This is the conclusion of a new report from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Authors Benedict Clements and Vitor Gaspar define energy subsidies as the difference between what consumers pay for energy and its true costs, plus a country's normal value-added or sales tax rate. Let me quote from their blog about the report. These true costs of energy consumption include its supply costs and the damage that energy consumption inflicts on people and the environment. These damages in turn come from carbon emissions and hence global warming, the health effects of air pollution and the effects of traffic congestion, traffic accidents and road damage. Most of these externalities are borne by local populations with the global warming component of energy subsidies only a quarter of the total. Energy subsidies are both large and widespread. They are pervasive across advanced and developing countries. Emerging Asia accounts for about half of the total, while advanced economies account for about a quarter. The largest subsidies in absolute terms are in China, $2.3 trillion. The United States, $700 billion. Russia, $335 billion. India, $277 billion. And Japan, $157 billion. For the European Union, subsidies are also substantial, at 330 billion dollars it's important to put in perspective just how many health problems are linked to energy consumption and air quality in china alone the world health organization estimates that there are over 1 million premature deaths per year due to outdoor air pollution caused by the burning of polluting fuels particularly coal and other sources Despite reform efforts in many countries, energy prices remain woefully below the levels that reflect their true costs. The IMF has long argued that getting energy prices right can help national governments achieve their goals not only for the environment, but also for inclusive growth and sound public finances. Increasing energy prices, gradually and predictably, to reflect their true costs would generate fiscal gains of about 3.5% of GDP. The fiscal gains are less than the total amount of subsidies, 6.5% of GDP, because higher prices would drive down energy consumption. Conditions are ripe to decisively engage in energy taxation and energy subsidy reform, further favoured by lower international oil prices and low inflation. Steps at the national level could hasten progress at the global level, ahead of the Paris Climate Change Summit in December. The fiscal implications are mammoth. At 5.3 trillion US dollars, energy subsidies exceed the estimated public health spending for the entire globe. It also exceeds the world's total public investment spending. The resources freed from subsidy reform could be used to meet critical public spending needs or reduce taxes that are choking economic growth. By acting local and in their own best interest, Policy authorities can contribute significantly to the solution of a global challenge. The path forward is thus clear. Act local. Solve global. Some very clear messages there. More incentives to move away from fossil fuels. Frankly, only governments are powerful enough to make this happen. Will governments have the courage to take the action needed? It's easy to wait and see until COP21 in December. It would be better to have a commitment sooner. Time to lobby our governments across the world. Talking of governments, let's turn to the Queen's Speech. Although the British government remains committed to significantly decarbonising the economy, there was nothing specifically about this in Wednesday's Queen's Speech when it set out its legislative programme for the next Parliament. The nearest we got was a general statement towards the end, my government will seek effective global collaboration to sustain economic recovery and to combat climate change, including at the Climate Change Conference in Paris later this year. There was also a commitment to increase energy security, but no hint of how this would be achieved. There was nothing in the speech to confirm the manifesto commitment to cut subsidies for new onshore wind farms, which looks completely contrary to a low-carbon policy, But that was probably covered by other measures will be laid before you. Fracking will probably be among them as well. Actually, the policy on land-based wind farms is quite subtle. On the one hand, it plays to the diehards in the Tory party who don't like wind farms and are determined to end such subsidies. On the other hand, wind power is nearly at the point where it's economically viable without subsidies. So wind farm development is likely to continue without them. It now appears that this legislation will apply only to England, not to Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. The Conservative Election manifesto sent mixed messages on sustainability, low carbon and the environment. It promised secure energy supplies, tick, lower bills, restoration of biodiversity and protection of the polar bear. As well as ending wind farm subsidies, It also promised nuclear power, clean coal and shale gas, which of course is fracking to the rest of us. The government's action on energy and climate change since the election has generally been seen as positive. Eric Pickles, who called in every planning decision on wind turbines for his personal scrutiny, is no longer Secretary of State for local government. The new Minister for Energy and Climate Change is Amber Rudd, an experienced politician with experience of the real world outside Parliament. Prior to the election, she was Parliamentary Under Secretary for Climate Change. She is seen as an antidote to climate sceptics in the government and is well known for quoting Margaret Thatcher's dictum on the environment. No generation has a freehold on this earth. All we have is a life tenancy with a full repairing lease. Already, she has said that she wants to see far more homes with solar panels, though we'll have to wait and see whether she proposes any more incentives for this. She says she quite likes the look of wind turbines, but she will be the minister responsible for the party's commitment to give the final say on wind farm development to local communities. Some see this final say as a legal minefield, as it could rob developers of a democratic right of appeal. If wind farm developers cannot appeal, why should fracking operators or solar farmers be allowed to do so? Amber Rudd will also be on the front line for the development of fracking, which could prove to be one of the most controversial issues of this parliament. Reserves are unproven. Fracking produces polluting fossil fuels. Fracking sites cause intense lorry traffic. Fracking is said to cause local water pollution and earth tremors. Fracking has so far made no one any money, even in the US. It'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. Let's hope that nothing overshadows the UK's involvement with COP21, the United Nations Climate Change Summit in Paris, in December. According to the Conservative Manifesto, we will push for a strong global climate deal later this year, one that keeps the goal of limiting global warming to two degrees firmly in reach. David Cameron will join the leaders of 195 other nations in the negotiations, Amber Rudd will have a pivotal role in support. At least the Paris conference was specifically mentioned in the Queen's speech. That's it then for this week. This is Anthony Day and thank you for listening to this latest episode of the Sustainable Futures show. Sorry about a few extraneous noises in the background, I'm not at base, I have to grab the opportunity to do this recording when and where I can. Next week, among other things, I'll be talking about advice from EDF Energy on how to deal with the energy market reform. What else would you like to hear about? What would you like to contribute? Wherever in the world you are, if you're an expert on sustainability and have something to say, let's do an interview on Skype. Contact me first on mail at anthony-day.com. Send me an email if you have any other comments, ideas or suggestions. Sorry about that. Keep them coming. This is Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures show. That's it for now. Till next time, have a great weekend.